Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Why do some addicts get recovery and some do not? That is the eternal question. It seems just such a complicated process, denial, self-justification, intimacy, avoidance, et cetera. Why do some get it and just seem to be able to, and, um, and just seem to be able to, is it a lack of desire to get recovery or something else? My husband seems very genuine about getting help, but things got worse instead of better. And I'm wondering why we're now in the process of a divorce and look what he's lost. Look, look what he's lost because of addiction. So, so. I mean, first of all, there are many answers to your question. You know, people have all kinds of problems. Let me just say it this way. Sex and porn addiction, intimacy disorders, love addiction, all that stuff is the tip of the iceberg of problems that are underneath. You know, we all have issues. If you're in this room or you're involved with someone who has these issues, you understand that. So, you know, I might have profound depression. I might have a lot, you know, I might have emotional issues that have prevented me from being able to get to that place of getting sober, sober. I may be so damaged emotionally and from earlier experiences that I can't really get it together. You know, I I give up on myself or, you know, it could be that this person needs to go to treatment. And I think that is one of the reasons, by the way, if you, for any of you, if you, how do you know if treatment is like going to a treatment center is useful? Because you've tried everything else. You've been to 12 step meetings, you go to therapy, you've been seeing a psychiatrist for meds, you know, you've done the couples work, you're doing everything you can and you still can't quite really get time together. Um, or you're having profound trauma or anxiety come up in relation to trying, or the relationship is so bad. When it is people, when people are having those kinds of crises and they don't know how to move forward, I think residential treatment is really, really helpful. Um, but in this situation, um, you know, it could also be, and I just want to say this, that people, people do things very passively at times. And it may be that this person didn't want to be in a relationship or didn't want to be in a relationship with you for a long time. And this was their out to say, oh, I can't get better, you know, to leave you feeling like I can't live with this. Sometimes people act out to try to encourage a partner to leave without actually being direct about it. The last thing I want to say besides it's a hidden message or maybe emotional illness is there um, is simply the fact that it's this is a hard process. It took me three years to get any meaningful sobriety. And so part of my question is, what do you mean by getting it? Because if you said, you know, someone was going to 12-step meetings as an alcoholic and they were going to therapy and they got nine months sober and then they returned to drinking, I wouldn't say that they're starting again. I wouldn't say that they didn't mean to or weren't trying. I would just say that maybe they missed something or we need to dig harder or they need more support. So I'm just saying that sometimes people don't get well because um, they don't have the motivation, they don't have the support, they don't have the places to go. And, and one last thing I want to say, you know, people ask me a lot, like, how do you get somebody to want to get well? And I got to tell you, you know, and I, this, I'll give an example. When I used to do a lot of media, you know, when CNN and, and HLN and all those, you know, when we're doing a lot more talk on TV rather than talking about politics, um, people used to ask me this question, um, which is, you know, how do I know this person's really committed to this or how I know they're going to get better? 
And the answer, and the way they would ask this in the media was, you know, this person must be going to treatment just as an excuse. They want everyone to feel sorry for themselves. They're getting out of their lives and going to treatment so everybody will think they have a problem when they're really just crazy sex people or whatever you want to call them, perverted. And I agree that most people come to treatment because they're in trouble. You know, they have a consequence and something bad has happened there, you know, and that is why they get help. So the one thing I cannot do in therapy is I cannot deeply motivate you to change your life. I can get you to look at yourself, to figure out what's wrong, to take other steps, what happened to you, how to avoid the problem, how to not get in more trouble with your spouse. But the one thing that I can't do is deeply inside of you come to a place of, I don't want to do this anymore. Because folks, whether you like it or not, acting out is fun. Tammy will tell you that when she drank, she had a hell of a time until she couldn't drink anymore. And sex addiction is fun until it isn't anymore. So a couple of things. Number one, sobriety or a lack of sobriety doesn't mean someone isn't trying, doesn't mean they're not doing their best. Um, this is a very difficult issue. And let me just add to that. This isn't alcohol. You know, you can stop drinking and have a very happy life without ever drinking again. You can have a gambling problem, have a very happy life without ever, no more casinos, no fantasy football, no more stock market. But when it, terms to, comes, when it comes to problems like sex or eating, which are naturally occurring functions that have run off the rails, you know, I have to deal with food every day. I have to hopefully in some way deal with sexuality every day or, or regularly. So moderating, managing, containing behaviors that have been out of control and now, but are not going to be eliminated, not going to stop having sex, stop eating. That's actually harder than just stopping. And no disrespect to that drug addicts and alcoholics, all the people who struggle out there, but you can put your stuff away and never look at it again. And that's the goal. And those of us eating, those of us who have eating disorders and sexual disorders, we need to look at that stuff for the rest of our lives. Keeping it in a healthy fashion is a regular struggle um, that will go on all of our lives. Yeah, yeah, my thought was, I don't know what the time span is, but yes, it gets worse before it gets better because if he's stopping the behavior and he doesn't have the tools to manage life, now all the all of the things that, all the reasons why he was acting out are now he's having to confront. And that is so uncomfortable. Another reason to come to treatment because, you know, we, we really help with that, you know, and move things much quicker. So, but, but again, as Dr. Rob said, you can't change somebody's motivation and if they absolutely refuse to, but I'm going to disagree with you. Like drinking was fun. Drinking and drugs was fun for a time. And then I was just yeah. chasing, no, then I was just chasing the fun that I thought I was going to have. It had stopped being fun. I had negative consequences. Like I'm well, won't go, but like, like it, there were very little fun towards the end of my career with that. So, but uh, as someone with an eating disorder in recovery, it is a daily basis. I, I am like not as mindful on some days as others, you know, I kind of have a routine and things like that, but Thanksgiving, you know, like, I, like you, I had to learn to be okay with, you know, it's, it's just going to be, it's a holiday. It's one day. I'm going to give myself some grace. These are the thoughts I had to go through in order to not be, you know, freaking out at Thanksgiving. So it's a daily thing, but I have, tools. I have to tell you, Tammy, I mean, this probably won't get recorded, but I, I was tortured at Thanksgiving because I've been on a diet, as you know, and I'm trying really hard and I lost 10 pounds. Yes, yay. But Thanksgiving, I was like, how it's going to ruin everything. And, and the next day I thought, oh my God, I've gained 20 pounds. You know, I have them crazy like that too. Mm -hmm. And I looked on the scale today. I'm the exact same way I was when I, you know, before Thanksgiving. So, mm -hmm. um, but these fears about parts of our functioning that are so profound and deep, 
they're really a hardship to turn. You know, I remember people talking about the economy, the American economy back in the recession. And they said, you know, an economy in a, in a country like ours is a very, very big ship and it takes a long time to turn it. And I think these issues are very similar. I've been living my way, my life my way for 25 years or 30 or 40 and that's how I've coped and that's how I've managed and like it or not, whether it hurts you or not, that was the best I could do in that to, during that time, right or wrong. And, uh, and so to relearn those ways of thinking and doing that have been survival skills for me for much of my adult life is a day-by-day -day thing. But for those of us who get it and continue to pursue, it is so worth it. You know, what, what I gave up, the fun, was nothing compared to the, to the gifts I've given. So, I, so I'm sad for you. I'm really sad for your, for your husband who's, you know, I mean, he's, he's losing you. He's losing, you know, so that it's just sad. So, but I'm glad you're here. And let me, and let me say one more thing to you and every partner in the room. I will say this regularly. There is nothing that you can ever do to make somebody have this problem. There's nothing you can really do to make them uh, change their problem. Um, there's certainly nothing you ever do on any day that can cause them to do this. You know, addicts act out because we want to, especially once we understand the problem. Um, so, you know, you can make me miserable, you can let me down, you can hurt me, you can disappoint me, and I can go for a walk. I don't have to, or I can divorce you. But the answer is not to go look at porn and cheat or drink. I mean, those are solutions for somebody who doesn't have the strength inside to find their, another way. Next question. Thank you, Dr. Robin Tammy, for all you do. It has been so helpful and, and a wonderful resource and support for me. I listened to an interview with Dr. Robin Troy Love today. He said that he sees a great disconnect when the spouses feel their pain suffering is so intense they cannot hold space for the other person suffering. I understand my husband has a disease and I want to help him through past and current trauma pain, but my husband doesn't have any or very little empathy for me and seems to be holding on to his rights and not fully accepting responsibility for his repeated lies and betrayals. How can a betrayed wife hold space for the addicted husband when it feels like they won't recognize or fully admit their wrongdoings? Well, I don't think that's your job. I don't think it is ever a partner's job to hold that space for healing for us. I think that's sponsors are for, that's what therapists are for, that's what 12-step groups are for, that's what we're for, and all of the free groups that we give away. By the way, that consultation I group do for therapists every week, that's free too, I want to say. So, um, sorry, back to the question. Um, um, your job as a spouse, and I say this a lot, you have three or four. Once you've discovered betrayal, one is to be angry and as angry as you need to be and as angry as you want to be for a while. Number two is to think about whether or not you want to live with this person or continue with this person. And the third thing is self-care, you know, really finding a place to deal with your pain and disappointment by getting as much support as you need, whether that's a massage or a night out with friends or going to a support group. But none of you spouses can ever, ever make us act out or make, no one can make Tammy drink. We, we can make Tammy miserable. We can make Tammy sad. Tammy can get very angry. I've seen it. But drink, that's her decision. And sometimes addicts will put that responsibility on us. Like, well, if you hadn't said this, or if you just lost more weight, or, you know, if you weren't so frustrating all the time, that's the addict's denial that it's easier to put it on you than it is to take responsibility myself. But for all your partners are thinking, well, if I just said this or I shouldn't have said that, do what you need to do. We, you, we are responsible for our healing. You are responsible to let us know what we've put you through and how you feel about it. 
And, and I agree. And I think you're living the disconnect right now. I mean, he can't hold the space for you. You are, I mean, that's the disconnect. So, so, but uh, yeah, everything Dr. Rob just said, you know, I agree with, (laughs) and if he needs treatment, we have a great treatment center that can help. Okay. Next question. Oh, this is an interesting one. What does trauma work look like for an addict using a codependent model? You know, I, I really don't believe in codependency and I don't believe in the codependency model. Um, I've written a book called Prodependence, which is really a 180 degree turn on codependence. The, the codependency model basically says, uh, if you're involved with an addict, there's something wrong with you for having gotten involved with them. There's something wrong with you for staying with them. And if you, even if you get away with them, if you don't away from them, if you don't look at your own stuff, you're going to end up with another version of them. And I just don't think there's any reason to go after and ask that level of self-examination from someone who loves someone who's in a crisis. You know, when someone is, has a heart attack or cancer, you don't say to their partner, well, you better work through your trauma because you've been spending too much time taking care of them. They say, how great that you're taking care of your loved one who's sick. We admire you. Let us give you a night off and here's a casserole. So why would anyone say to a partner or a loving parent, you know, this person's addiction is a real struggle and let's look at how you have been supporting the problem or part of the problem. Partners and spouses are not part of the problem. Even if you as a spouse are not handling the problem well, you're nagging, you're complaining, you're doing, you become someone you don't want to be. That doesn't mean that you in any way can cause us to do anything that unless we choose to do it. So um, trauma. Under the codependency model, what they're asking you to do is look at your issues as they're playing out in your current relationship. And the better in touch you are with the brokenness of your past, the easier it will be to heal your present. And I don't think the past has anything to do with the crisis when you're living with an addict. When you live with an addict, they're the problem. And your problems are in relationship to it because you're living with someone who's a mess and your home is in constant crisis. So to me, what I see that we call codependency, you know, words like enmeshed, I'd rather say deeply caring. You know, words like enable, I would rather say, we'll do anything they do to help their family member. I mean, I think there are very positive ways that we can look at the, the hard journey of a loved one or a family member of an addict without asking them to devalue or dismiss or pick themselves apart. You know, if some of you want to self-examine and go to therapy after your loved one has gotten sober, after the crisis is over, you know, when things are better, great. You know, self-discovery is a wonderful thing. But I don't think anyone needs to go to therapy for what they did wrong in a relationship that turned out to be addictive. Do you guys, spouses, need therapy? Absolutely. What do you need it for? Is it the same as the addict? No, you need, you need therapy for support. You need therapy to validate your reality. You need therapy to grieve the relationship you thought you had versus what you really have. But there is nothing wrong with you spouses that peace and quiet and wholeness in your home wouldn't help with. That was a bad sentence. But bring no, your life back I, into balance. Following have, the addict, have the addict come to peace with their addiction and your life will get better. And if you still don't like yourself in your life, then go take a look at yourself, but not until the crisis has passed. And uh, yeah, I just don't, I think codependency is a harm that's actually been visited on loving people, mostly women, to ask them to question the love that they give. And I don't think the love we give should ever be questioned. Next question, how to control self-destructive behaviors? 
So I'm not sure what that means by self-destructive. Do you have a thought about that, Tammy? Well, yeah, I was like, like, I can't control, like the, the, in 12 step, we talk about surrender to win, you know, like the more I tried to control my acting out behavior, my drinking, my drugging, whatever, the, the more I was focused on it and the more it, like, I just, I absolutely failed. And then I failed and then I was shamed and all of that. It was a vicious cycle. The, the more I got support to intervene on it, the that's, that's when things shifted. So for me, I, I still know I cannot control you know, my addiction, I can do the things I need to do in order to stay in recovery today. And that's what I do. So that's, you know, that's my, you know, like, why, why do I, and I did a lot of therapy. Why did I do those self-destructive things? You know, so that was helpful for me. And, and Tammy, you know, I really appreciate your looking at it in terms of addiction. Um, I'm thinking about a larger thing, which is, People sometimes think they sabotage themselves at work, mm. in their creativity, in their relationships. And here's another concept I don't believe in, self-sabotage. I don't think any of us want to ruin our lives or sabotage. I think we do things in the way we do them and we make mistakes or we don't know any better or we're broken. But I don't think it's ever our intention, conscious or unconscious, to hurt ourselves or hurt others unless we're really, really, really troubled. Um, but when you say self-destructive, I think that needs more definition. If in terms of addiction and relationships and the intimacy issues we're talking about and you destroy relationships, you hurt yourself with your sexual behavior, you know, you're on the right track. You know, we're the right place for you. But issues like I keep losing jobs, I keep letting myself down, I, I can't follow through on things, I, you know, things that tr I lose all my money and then I, I can't pay my bills. I mean, truly what you might call self-destructive things. I think there are always places to go work on that, as Tammy said. For example, people who have struggle, trouble with money, either you overspend or you underspend. Um, there's a Debtors Anonymous program that I loved and spent time with because it actually helps a lot with other addictions, I think. It has a lot of concepts I like. But whatever your self-destructive behavior is, if it's persistent and consistent, there's a support group for that. And, and to that point, I just want to say to all of you, you know, we have 14 groups a week on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. They're all free. They're just like, this is one of them. You know, we have support groups for addicts, support groups for partners, support groups for men and women and couples and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it may well be that if you go online and you type in support groups for self-destructive behavior, you're going to find a whole bunch of information. Um, you know, it's funny, Tammy, I don't mean to be dismissive, but you know, people call for questions, right? They call, what is this? What is that? And not often, but sometimes if they just Googled the question, they would find the answer. And in this case, I think there's so much information on self-destructive behavior and so many groups that are there to support you. Um, I would suggest joining others who have been through what you've been through, who are working through it, and you can use as role models. Next question. My essay husband gave me restitution letter, waited six months since impact letter was shared, did not consult a CSAT did not address all things, felt it was not complete, did not want to address the impact. Denial appears to be very high still. I rejected the letter and asked him to consult a CSAT. Is this an example of, uh, part of denial? Or is this example part of denial? What do you suggest for him to better address denial? You start and I'm gonna finish. I, I, like I, To me, hmm. I'm wondering what his level of commitment in working with his therapist is. And beyond that, you know, I've said a bunch of times on here, if 
if somebody's just going to a therapist once a week and that's all they're doing to combat something that is probably decades old, you know, underlying issues, it's not enough. But um, I don't know what the boundaries were. I don't know what, when you did disclosure, what the, uh, what the boundaries for providing the restitution letter. But to me that, you know, that sounds like either things weren't set in place to have a clear understanding of what it was supposed to be. And clearly he didn't consult his CSAT. So this feels like a treatment failure. I'm thinking it's not enough. So go ahead. And I, you know, we have this statement about denial. And if you run the letters down, it's uh, didn't even, didn't even know I was lying. Um, uh, and what we mean by that is people in denial are lying to people in denial are lying to themselves. And so you may help them look at something that's a truth and they're going to fit it into their worldview and they're going to make it your fault or they're going to ignore it. To be honest, the only thing that really can help with denial is the direct and honest truth. And I have to say to you spouses, you know, I, I, and some of you guys, we have a bunch of people in treatment right now and the people who are in treatment are always sitting here listening. So, um, so what was I going to say about that? Um, um, and one of the things we talk to them about is, you know, is that I can say something when I walk into one of the clients and they'll say, it's like, wow, that was amazing. I never thought of it that way. And then they'll say half the time, you know, my wife says that to me all the time, but this is the first time I've been able to hear it. So sometimes what people do is they put us, partners, spouses, family members in a box, and all they hear is wah, 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 wah. They don't actually hear what we're saying. But if, a, if somebody else comes in that they don't know and they can't push away, and that person says, I mean, this is part of what we do in treatment. We put it all up on a wall and say, well, you say you love your family. You say you love, you want to keep your job, but let's look at all the things you did to hurt your family and hurt your job. This is your denial that you could do these things and still do still try to be in your family or be successful is your denial because it's going to get in the way. But until someone is ready to see how and in what ways they're destroying their own lives, you can't make them. So next question. Well, actually, the next is a comment. I just finished reading out of the doghouse and I can see how doing what you recommend has helped me rebuild trust in my wife. So that's good. Okay. So I'll sell that book. I wrote yeah. a book called Out of the Doghouse because in 25 years of doing this work, I have never yet met, ran into a man who knew how to heal the way he had hurt a woman through betrayal or cheating. Guys, we just think of it as like, well, I dropped the plate, I glued it back together. It's been a month. Why isn't it better? Or why are they still so angry? Or, you know, guys are very answer driven. So we want to find the solution to your anger, to your disappointment, and we want to solve it, whether that's us showing you how much we care or sending you flowers or, you know, whatever. And that's not what heals this. What heals it is time and really consistent, healthy behavior over time. I mean, that we can see and watch. So um, words don't matter. Um, oh, we've got a new question. Words don't matter, actions do. And when I'm gonna confront someone, by the way, I confront them because I really believe their actions are not matching up to their words. Next question, I struggle with lying. 
I feel like I haven't, I know, I like, I hear from okay. partners all the time, he lies. And I was like, of, of course he does. Every addict does. I struggle with lying. I feel like I have improved since I first walked into the rooms. I lie because of fear, the fear of being rejected or abandoned. How can I overcome this? I go to meetings, therapy, and make program calls. I intellectualize recovery and the program. How can I overcome the fear of letting people get close to me and know who I am? Well, those are two different questions. So can we do the lying one first yes. and the letting people get close to me second? Yes. Okay. So um, I have a little rule. First of all, if a lot of, let me back up. One of the challenges addicts have and sex addicts in particular is being assertive. Um, we don't, we avoid conflict. We can yell the hell out of somebody, but actually someone coming to us, we don't like conflict. We avoid conflict. If we understood how to deal with it, we wouldn't act out sexually or with drugs or whatever. So conflict is difficult for us. We don't. And so when I, when I've lied to you, even if it's, yeah, I said I took the garbage out this morning, but I didn't. Um, you are, sorry, I was going to, what did I want to say there? Oh, you're going to see my angry face when I say, I know you didn't take out that garbage and you're going to want to lie. So you say you took it out, but you really didn't. And you don't want me to get upset. So you lie to me. And then I look in the garage and there is that garbage that you never took out. I'm going to be furious. And I'm going to come up to you and say, if you lie about this, you could be lying about anything. And a lot of times it's just very hard for us addicts to face the absolutely deserved uh, aggression and disappointment in people in the faces of those we love and tell the truth. It's just very difficult. But what we can do, and this is the bargain I make with everybody who has this problem, is what you can do is you can make a commitment to your sponsor, to your family, to your partner, to your therapist, that in the moment you may lie. In the moment, it may be so hard for you to be truthful and you're so afraid of rejecting everything that you will just not to tell the truth. Fine. But the agreement is that I will come back to you within 24 hours and I will tell you the truth. When I used to see people outpatient or even in seeking integrity, I say, look, I know you're going to lie to me because you lie to everybody. And that's fine. I lied too when I was in my addiction actively, but um, just let me know, you know, just call me in 48 hours and say, I lied. I'm really sorry. That was really hard for me. It's all good. It's kind of like forgiveness. You know, you in a relationship, Tammy can hurt me, disappoint me, uh, you know, uh, make me mad. But as long as she can come back and say, well, you know, I think this is my part and this is your part, then I can hear it and I can work with it. If I'm in relationship with someone who just lies and they don't own their part, that makes me crazy. And that's not a relationship I want to be in. So let's talk about the, how can I overcome the fear of letting people get close to me and know who I am? Well, this is a really interesting question because this is the essence of intimacy. It is the key to intimacy. Intimacy is not about sex. Intimacy is not about, you know, falling in love or romance. Intimacy is about being known. Some of the people I'm most intimate with are people I went to high school with, and we're friends 40 years later. I know everything about these people. They know everything about me. There's no secrets, nothing to hide. They knew me when I was 17. So I'm not saying you have to have long, relationships that long, but intimacy is about being known. If I have the guts to say to you, you know, I'm really disappointed when you went away for the weekend and didn't do blah, blah, blah. Um, that means I am willing to be intimate with you because you may say, screw you, or you may say, I don't want to hear that. Or you may say, well, I'm really concerned about how you feel. If I move towards you by revealing myself, and I'm not talking about addiction, I'm talking about healthy relationships or ones that are not clogged by drama. Um, if I go up and I say, you know, I've been meaning to tell you this for a really long time. It's uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. Here you go. 
Um, I know that we're being intimate if you're listening and you're not judging me and you're curious about what I said. Um, I can tell whether somebody is really motivated for me to be intimate with them or they're not. And it's very simple. Are they able to hear what I have to say? Are they able to accept me and listen without judgment? Um, those are the key. And are they able to ask for more? Because intimacy, or are they willing to share a little bit about themselves so we can be mutually intimate? I think that one of the most intimate things you can do with someone you're truly connected to and truly love is have sex. Because making love and having sex with someone that you care about is being very vulnerable. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, Tammy, but I don't like this little bulge I have here and I hate this little part and I don't like that, you know, but and when I'm naked with somebody, they're going to see all of that, especially I, someone I love deeply. I have to trust that my vulnerability by literally standing in front of them naked is not going to be met with judgment, arrogance, or disappointment. And in that way, I can keep moving toward them. So how do you get over it? Tammy, you're, I'm going to leave that. I have some ideas. They have to do with 12-step programs and practice, but maybe you have some thoughts about that. Well, my first thought was a little at a time. You know, I have to be willing to risk. I have to be willing to get hurt. I have to be, you know, like if I keep letting my fear stop me, I'm going to always be intellectualizing. I'm always going to be disconnected. I'm, no one's going to know me for who I really am. And so so I always know that they wouldn't really like me if they knew who I really was. And so, and that's a shadow form of life that, you know, is, is not, I mean, that's what I think as active addicts, what we do. So, so if, but if I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to say a little bit and they, it, they're willing to take that. Then the next time I share a little bit more, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where it's a little at a time. It isn't like, and I'm going to tell you everything so that, you know, it's off putting. So thoughts. I would just say also that the opposite of intimacy in some ways is addiction because intimacy is about opening up, being honest, having integrity, telling my truth, what, even if it doesn't go well. And addiction is all about hiding parts of myself, keeping parts of myself secret, compartmentalizing my life. So I don't ever really have to be completely open with you because there's things you don't know about. But here's the problem, by the way, with lying and being non-intimate is that you will never know whether you're truly loved or not. Because if you are close to me and I am doing things and lying to you about them, then when you were kind and loving to me, I'm going to say, well, that's nice that they're being kind and loving. But if they knew where I was today or what I've been doing, drinking sex, whatever, they wouldn't feel this way toward me. And so in that way, when we are in our addiction, we can't accept the love and appreciation that is there, even when it's there, because we tell ourselves there are reasons why we don't deserve the love that we're getting. So it's very hard for us to be intimate with anyone in active addiction. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.